want to give you a, a quick health update. I had uh, mentioned a few weeks back that my sister was diagnosed with um, sarcoma and thyroid cancer. And uh, because of that, I, I went back into the doctor myself because I've had some nodules in my thyroid in the past. And I discovered Friday morning that I also have thyroid cancer. So that's kind of the next uh, battle that, that we will be facing. Um, you know, the good news is, of all the cancers you're going to have in the world, thyroid cancer is, is a very treatable uh, cancer. Um, one of the things I found out, we talked to a friend of ours who's... Um, She's a doctor affiliated with MD Anderson, and she said, you know, probably because you have cancer same time as your sister. I mean, she's got sarcoma, but she also has thyroid cancer. You're around the same age. The MD Anderson, they're probably going to want to study you. So I called my sister, and I said, you know, this, this just confirms it. We've been telling the world all along we're special. And now uh, we get to be the object of, of study. So uh, that said, I would appreciate uh, prayer just in the next... Uh, several weeks just working out the logistics and how do we uh, process this and, and uh, uh, deal with uh, what needs to be taken care of medically and then, you know, spiritually that we just lean into the Lord through this and you uh, just kind of guard and protect our hearts through the whole process. So uh, that's our medical update and, and I have uh, no clever way to get into Philippians. So Philippians, let's go. <laughs> Philippians chapter two, if you're not there already, uh, verses 19 through 30 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, I thought I'd begin by giving you an illustration. There was a man named Robert Thornton. He was a professor at Lehigh University. And uh, several years ago, he, he created this collection of phrases that he called uh, litigation-proof phrases. So if you're, you're called upon to, to write a letter of recommendation and you want to say something about the applicant but not really get caught saying what you want to say about the applicant... Right? He's got all these phrases that are uh, intentionally ambiguous. In fact, he, he named this collection the Lexicon of Intentionally Ambiguous Recommendations, which is an acronym for, did you catch it? Liar, right? <laughs> right? It's an acronym for liar. So, okay, I'm going to give you a few of, of his, uh, his phrases. All right, so first, uh, to describe an inept person, I enthusiastically recommend this candidate with no qualifications whatsoever. Now, some of these will kind of take just a second to, to sink in, right? To describe an ex-employee who had problems getting along with fellow workers. I am pleased to say that this candidate is a former colleague of mine. That's one of my favorites. To describe an unproductive candidate, I can assure you that no person would be better for the job. Do that? Okay. Yeah, that no person at all would be better for the job. Okay. So I, I wonder, um, have you ever asked anybody to, to do a letter of recommendation for you? What do you imagine, if you didn't get a copy, what do you imagine that they wrote about you? What would you want them to write about you? Philippians 2, I don't know if you've, if you've read through this recently, but Philippians 2, 19-30 is actually a letter of recommendation. Remember, uh, Epaphroditus had been in the church of Philippi. Um, he had come to Paul and brought this financial gift when Paul was in prison, but then he got sick, and now Paul is about to send Epaphroditus back and then after him, he wants to send Timothy, and then Paul himself wants to come. And before he sends him back, he's, he's giving him a letter of recommendation, so to speak, which is very common in those days. If you were sending a letter by an emissary, you might also send a letter introducing the emissary so that they would receive that person well. Well, they already knew Epaphroditus, and they knew Timothy, so Paul is, in a sense, reintroducing these two men and reminding the people that they should listen to them and pay attention to them and actually imitate their lives, right? These two men who are coming to you are living lives that are worthy of imitation. The writer of the Hebrews does a similar thing. Chapter 13, verse 7, he says, remember those who led you, 
who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. The imitation of the faith of others, in fact, that was Paul's primary methodology for spiritual formation. He would say of himself, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Or if you look over in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. And literally, that Greek word is mimic in English. Right? Mimic my faith. Mimic the faith of others. And then live a life that is worthy of imitation. Because for better or for worse, this is how we learn. Right? This, is, this is how human beings learn. They learn through imitation. There was a study that was done uh, back in the, the late 70s by two neuroscientists. And what they discovered is that as early as 12 days of age, a baby begins to learn how to mimic the facial expressions of his or her parent. Right, 12 days old. And that capacity to mimic is retained throughout the entire life. That's how babies, as they grow, learn language and they learn all of these other complex skills that human beings do. Do we learn through imitation? So as one of them wrote, this work is important because imitation is a natural procedure. We don't learn to imitate. It is part of our biological nature and we are born to imitate. So for better or for worse... This is how we learn, which means maybe we need to choose our models wisely, right? Because we will consciously or unconsciously learn from others. I I learned this early on with my own children, right? There are things that I I want them to learn, and so I make these statements, and my son, uh, when I make a statement, he always says, Dad, you're saying that like it should be chiseled in stone. And I go, yes, you should chisel this in stone. This is good, right? But there's a lot more stuff that my kids just kind of learn accidentally, they're not intending it, I'm not intending it, but they just see it in me. Um, I will confess that sometimes I talk to the drivers around me as I'm driving. And I'm sure that I didn't like learn that on my own. I, I learned that from someone. I would like to not take responsibility for that character quality in me. I learned it from someone else, but then I learned that I'm passing it on to my kids. When uh, I don't remember which one it was, but uh, when they were really young, I one of them looked out the window and said, Man, what a bonehead driver. I was like, ah, okay, I need to kind of dial it back a little bit, right? Let's not keep this thing going. That's how we learn. And so Paul holds up Timothy and Paphrodite. He says, learn from them, imitate their faith. And as we look at their two examples, I want us just to kind of ruminate in our minds. What do we learn from them that we should imitate so that others can imitate us? Because that is the Great Commission, right? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So let's learn from Timothy and Epaphroditus what we could imitate and what others could imitate in our lives. All right, chapter 2, verse 19 is where we're going to begin. Paul writes, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me and I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and the minister to my need because he was longing for you all and he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death. 
But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Four characteristics of imitators of Christ that I want to show you from this passage this morning. The first is this. Imitators of Christ fix their eyes on Jesus. Timothy and Epaphroditus had their eyes fixed on Jesus. The cause for them was Christ. That was was the, the consuming passion of their lives. The gospel of Jesus Christ, to know Jesus Christ and to make Jesus Christ known. But for Paul, he couldn't say that about all of his co-workers that he had ever worked with before. In fact, uh, there's one co-worker that he mentions three times. This man is only mentioned three times in the New Testament. And if you look chronologically at each of the mentions of his name, you, you see a progression. His name is Demas. Three times he's mentioned first in Philemon. It says, Demas My fellow worker. Paul calls him a fellow worker. And then in Colossians, he just mentions his name. Demas also sends you his greetings. But then in the last book that Paul wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas took took Christ out of the center of his life. Christ was no longer the passion of his heart. His cause was not Christ, but his cause was his comfort. He loved this present world. And he moved away from Christ. So Paul says, here are two men who are worthy of imitation. And Jesus Christ is the very center of their life. He's the preoccupation of their life. Their lives are are fixated and obsessed with Jesus Christ and knowing him and making him known. And I want you to imitate their faith. Now, how do we do that? Let me start uh, by giving you an illustration before I make a couple points. And I'm going to admit before I make uh, this illustration that I am biased, but it doesn't mean I'm wrong. Right? Just because I'm biased doesn't mean I'm wrong. I am biased, and I would say that um, Fighting Texas Aggie Band, band is the best band uh, in the world. And I'm intentionally playing to my audience. Right? Because I have friends who are sitting out here who, who went to another school in Austin. And I'm still playing to my audience, right? And, and I will say to those friends, tough. I, you, know, I you know, one of those friends, he'll sit really close and often wears orange just because he can, right? And, and uh, I, I'm just going to tell you, this is the best band ever. This, I mean, it's amazing. Largest military band in the United States of America, 300 plus members of this band. They execute these incredibly complex maneuvers with precision every time, right? I, I, when I, whenever I get to go to a game, I pull up my phone, I make a video, and I send it to my mother-in-law in Tulsa, and she weeps. <laughs> this is so beautiful. She loves marching bands, so I always have to send It's just amazing. How do they do it? I've never seen this band make a misstep. How do they do it? Here's the secret. Everybody puts their eyes on the drum major. Okay, all eyes on the drum major. And if you're in a part of the band and you can't see the drum major, then you put your eyes on the side drum major who has his or her eyes on the lead drum major. And if you can't see the side drum major on the right, you put your eyes on the side drum major on the left who has his or her eyes on the drum major at front. Everyone's eyes are on the drum major. In other words, nobody's following the tubas, right? I mean, that's cool, but they kind of, you know, 
they kind of get out of whack a little bit. They could. I mean, they're boom, boom, boom. And you hear the echo of the tuba all throughout. And your timing could get off. You don't even listen to the drums because you could be 60 yards away from the drums. Keep your eye on the drum major. Fix your eyes on Christ. To have a life that is worthy of imitation, you fix your eyes on Christ. How do you do that? Well, you know, one of the things that I do is I read the all four Gospels several times every year. Uh, I read other books too, right? And I'll get into the Minor Prophets once in a while and I'll read Revelation. But I, I read the Gospels multiple times every year. And I'm always looking for lessons that I can learn from the life of Jesus. And there are thousands, but I want to share uh, three with you. First is this. His mission was clear. Jesus knew what he was about. And there were people who tried to pull him off mission and tried to get him into arguments he didn't want to have right, or do things that he didn't want to do, but he always stayed exactly on mission. And he would say of himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why I came. I came to give my life. I came to introduce you to the Father. I came so that you would have life and that you would have life abundantly. And Jesus never lost his mission. Uh, there is a, a, a think tank for youth ministry out in Fuller, California, Fuller Seminary. And they wrote uh, a book, and they've produced a lot of literature around this concept of, of sticky faith. Meaning, uh, how is it that kids can take a hold of the faith, and they can stick with it for a lifetime? What are the factors involved? And the first factor may seem really obvious, but it's simply this. That they have a really, really clear understanding of the gospel. Right? The gospel is clear. And you go, okay, well, it seems obvious, but... But here's the implication. Okay? Um, if children grow up in a home or they hear in their church or from friends that the gospel is about a set of rules to manage their behavior, as soon as they're out from underneath that authority that has put a set of rules on them to manage their behavior, they throw off all the rules. But that's not the gospel. Right? When they are introduced to the true gospel, that it is the Son of Man who created the universe who loves them and wants to bring them into a relationship with his father, a relationship that they didn't earn, they don't deserve, but it's a free gift and they can never lose it because God loves them that securely and that deeply. Then when they get out on their own and they've fallen in love with Jesus and in love with the father, their faith sticks, right? Because they understand the gospel as it truly is, not a set of rules to manage your behavior, but a relationship with the creator of the universe and the savior of the world who loves them securely, safely, deeply, and will not let them go, then faith sticks. That's why Jesus came. Not to give us a new and better set of rules to manage our behavior, but to awaken our hearts to the love of God the Father. And Jesus never lost his mission. Church, you've been given a mission. Help people find and follow Jesus, to make the name of Jesus known, help people discover him, help people grow in their faith. That's your mission. Don't ever deviate. And your life becomes worthy of imitation. Second, his model was intentional. Jesus was always modeling, and he was always modeling on purpose. Remember, uh, early on uh, in his ministry, he discovered uh, three fishermen, Peter, James, and John. He walked up to them, and he said, what? Follow me. Follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Follow me, and I will bring significance to your life. Follow me. One day he went up on the mountain, he prayed all night long, he came down and he chose 12, we're told, so that they would be with him. So for three years, they were just with him. Every place that he slept, they slept. Wherever he ate, they ate. Whatever miracles he did, they saw. 
Whatever teaching he did, they heard. And then he turned around and sent them out to do miracles and to do teaching in his name and to imitate. And then they came back and he said, let's debrief and talk about it and let's celebrate all that was happening. Everything he did was always modeling. That's the purpose of your life as well. That you would live a life worthy of imitation. So no matter what your career, no matter what your stage in life is, that God has put people around you who are watching you so that you could live in a manner that is like Christ. People could see it and they could say, oh, that's what it means to follow Jesus. Live in a manner worthy of imitation. Jesus was very intentional. He never deviated from his model. Third, his ministry flowed from intimacy. Throughout the Gospels, you will see, and this is something you should notice, what are the patterns that are repeated that Jesus frequently left everyone and went aside to be with his father, just Jesus and his father. And you might think to yourself, wow, if the son of God needed to be alone with the father, how much more so do I? But he needed it. He craved it. He longed for it. He really felt like he couldn't continue on in life and ministry here on this earth without being with his father, being reminded of who he is. A beloved son in whom the father is well pleased without being reminded that God had a plan for every single day of his life. And some days might be difficult and hard and some days might be really blessed and easy. Some days he might stay put. Some days he might be walking for miles. But every single day the father had a plan. And every single day he was a beloved son of the father. And so every time he spent time with the father, it refreshed his spirit. And so he modeled that for his disciples, and he modeled it for us. And at the end of his life, he instructed his disciples. He said, you need to understand something. I'm the vine, and you're the branches. You're not the vine. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If, as a branch, you don't stay connected with me, you can't bear fruit. And I've called you to myself so that you will bear fruit. Now, go out and bear fruit. No, go out and abide, and you will bear fruit. But if you don't abide, you won't bear fruit. And I've called you to bear fruit, so abide, right? Stay in intimate Fellowship with me so that your life can become worthy of imitation and people can find and follow Jesus through you. Those are three lessons from the life of Jesus. So imitators of Christ first fix their eyes on Jesus and they learn from Jesus. Second, imitators of Christ carry the burdens of others. Read with me again chapter 2 and verse 20. Speaking of Timothy, Paul wrote, For I have no one else of kindred spirit, who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Now, that's a bit of hyperbole because Paul also had Epaphroditus, and he's going to list some people later in the book that are with him. But in this moment in time when he's in prison, he's like, and it just feels like there's, there's no one else who literally is of the same soul. Right? Kindred spirit means to be of the same soul, who will genuinely be more concerned for you than he is even for himself. Listen to the description of Epaphroditus. Verse 26, it says, He was longing for you all, and he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Did you see the dynamic there? Epaphroditus was sick, but he was really worried about the Philippians who had heard that he was sick. So in his sickness, he was worried about those who heard that he was sick, and he wanted to make sure that they weren't worried about his sickness. What do you think about when you're sick? (laughs) Your sickness. I think about me. right? That's what I think about. When I'm sick, Epaphroditus was really, really worried in the midst of his sickness that somebody had heard that he was sick and they were distressed about his sickness. I'm like, wow, that's, that's pretty supernatural. Um, I will tell you, you know, when I, I called my sister and I said, hey, guess what? Um, I have cancer too. Right? My sister said, uh, oh, 
So I wish that I could just have all of the cancer for our whole family myself. I will tell you, that's how my sister has always been. That's, that's who she is. When we were little kids, uh, this happened over and over and over again, but I remember one occasion we were invited to neighbor's house uh, for dinner, which uh, an invitation to some family's house for dinner was a frightening thing for me. I'm a different person now, uh, I will tell you. But, you know, as a kid growing up, uh, I loved those plates that had partitions, right? So that none of the food actually touched the other food, right? It says, I, you know, casserole illustration I gave a while back. Oh, man, that's horrifying because you can't even tell the ingredients. Right? Everything's mixed together. And so it was challenging. You go to somebody else's house, I'm like, what's going to be on the plate? And is it all going to be mixed together or touching? It's going to be touching, right? So we had, we had shish kebab. So I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like, you know, food on a stick. But on the shish kebab, they put lots of vegetables. I'm like, ah, uh, you know, I mean, I eat vegetables now, but it was like, uh, it was really frightening because there's big chunks of onions and mushrooms. I had never eaten a mushroom in my life. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like out of the lot next door. What is, what is that thing? And, and I was frightened. And uh, my sister, she didn't want to eat the mushrooms either, but we were taught at our own home, but especially if you go out to eat, you eat everything that is put on your plate you don't whine, you don't complain, you don't ask for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you eat everything on your plate. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'm, I, you know, the, the little speed bag at the back of your throat, it's like, it's just going off like crazy. I'm like, oh no, oh no, this is scary, right? So my sister reaches over and she takes all of my onions and all of my mushrooms and she, she ate all of them. Like she ate everything on my plate. And then the meal was over and they brought out rhubarb pie. I'm like, What's a rhubarb, <laughs> right? Uh, so she ate my huge piece of rhubarb pie, and then we went home, and she threw up. I, I, I mean, it's just the quantity of food she had to consume on my behalf, right? But that's, that's who my sister is. Concerned more about my needs than her own. Right? I'm going to tell you a story about my sister-in-law as well, Tristy's sister. She has had a, a lot of, of health battles in the last several years. She's a, a really fragile diabetic, and um, she's just super tough. I mean, she just keeps going. But it's been kind of one thing after another. And I think it was about a year ago, she fell and she broke her leg. So she had to go into a, a rehab uh, hospital. And uh, in that rehab hospital, she was sharing a room with another person. And uh, this other person uh, just laid in bed and moaned and cried out 24-7. So Tristy called her, and she heard this lady moaning in the back and crying. And she said, oh, Jenny, I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, it's probably hard to sleep. You don't have your room by yourself. And Jenny said, oh, Tristy, she goes, I'm okay. I just feel sad. No one's coming to visit her. Right? I'm like, uh, that's supernatural, isn't it? Epaphroditus is sick. And what he's really worried about is the fact that you learned that he's sick and you're distressed over his sickness. So he wants to get well so he can come and see you so that you won't be distressed because he's really more concerned about you than he is about others because that's the nature of Christ hanging on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in the midst of his pain, he's concerned about others. You want to imitate Christ. We carry the burdens of others, which is completely, completely countercultural. That's not what our culture is about. There's a woman named uh, Janet Twenge. She wrote a book called Generation Me. And she tells a story in that book where uh, when she was younger, 
she's riding in the car with her mom, and um, Whitney Houston's uh, song came on, The Greatest Love of All. Some of you remember that, right? So Whitney Houston's singing Greatest Love of All, and she goes, Mommy, what, what's that song about, The Greatest Love of All? And her mom had not, had not heard the song before, and she said, well, I, I guess it's about loving your children, right? Because that's got to be the greatest love of all. And she said this, she goes, uh, my mother was sweet, but wrong. You know what the song's about? Loving yourself, right? The greatest love of all is learning to love yourself. That's what Whitney said. And so when you discover the greatest love of all is to love Jesus, and on behalf of Jesus, to love others, that goes completely against the culture of our day. So, read with me again chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, which there is, if there is any consolation of love, which there's a lot, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he gives the example of Christ. And then he gives the example of Timothy. And then he gives the example of Epaphroditus. And then he gives the example of himself. And he says, imitate this example. And maybe as you're reading through chapter 2, you go, man, Paul, that's so redundant. Or maybe you come in here on a Sunday, you go, man, Brian, that's so redundant. Can we just do one example and can we move on? We got this. We got this, right? Give up our lives, live live more for others. We got this. And I say, really? Do we got this? This is so countercultural. Honestly, we could probably cover this every single week. I mean, have we intentionally stepped back and said, you know, life is not about me and and my joy will be most deeply found when I give my life for others. What can I do? Have I, have I, have I made those changes of, of heart and attitude and action that reflect that I genuinely believe that my joy in life is in giving my life to others? Imitators of Christ carry the burdens of others. Imitators of Christ are worthy of being imitated because this is what Christ did for us. Third characteristic, imitators of Christ Serve like children. Chapter 2, verse 22, Paul says, But you know of his proven, this is of Timothy, of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. And, you know, maybe you heard that and you go, "Um, Wait a second, my kids don't like to serve at all. So what's the point of the analogy? Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. It was in the Commandments of the Old Testament. Now Paul says, let me reiterate again. Children, obey your parents. What's, what's normal, in a sense, for children who are seeking after God is they obey their parents. So I did a quick word study on obey. I'd never done a word study on obey before. And one of the things I discovered is that in classical Greek literature, this word literally referred to the servant who's waiting for the knock at the door. Okay, Obedience was waiting for the knock at the door and then opening the door for a visitor to come in. So obedience is this. Jesus knocks at the door. We hear it. We listen. We open the door. And Jesus comes in and he arranges all of the furniture in a fresh way. Right? We've invited him in to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. That's obedience. That's, the, that's childlike obedience that Paul is talking about here. So listen to this description of Epaphroditus again, verse 25. 
Paul says, but I thought it necessary right now to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. What did Epaphroditus do? Anything he was asked. And six different roles are listed for him there. Six different uh, uh, functions that he, he fulfilled with Paul and in the ministry of Paul. He said, Paul, I want to follow you because you're following Christ. What would you have me to do? Imitators of Christ serve like children because that's what Jesus did with his father. Father, not my will, but yours be done. When he went away for time in prayer, the father said, go to this city. So Jesus went. He said, heal these people. So Jesus healed them. He said, speak these words. So Jesus spoke these words. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus lived completely surrendered. Those who are worthy of imitation live a completely surrendered life to Jesus. And then fourth, imitators of Christ endure with courage. Verse 22 again, Paul says, You know of Timothy's proven worth. How is his worth proven? Because day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, Timothy had been faithful. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 uses the same vocabulary. It says, But the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The proof of your faith, it will be tested. There will be days that feel like fire and days that feel like cool water. Be days of difficulty and days of blessing. And in Timothy's case, whether things were good or things were difficult, he was faithful. He endured with courage. He was sent into difficult situations and he did them with grace and with faithfulness over a long period of time. Paul says, imitate faith like that. Let me illustrate this for you. Um, 1911, there were two expeditions that set out to reach the South Pole and then to come back. One was led by uh, Roald Amundsen and the other by Robert Falcon Scott. So, same objective, two different teams, both of them well-equipped for the journey, but they had two different strategies. Uh, Scott's team decided that when the weather was good, they would just push as hard as they could. So there were days that they did 40 miles and even 60 miles. And then when the weather was bad, they would just stay in their tents and wait for the weather to clear. Now, Amundsen's group had a completely different strategy, which was every day we're going to do 20 miles. Every day we'll do 20 miles. If, if the weather's good, we're going to do 20 miles, and then we're going to stop, and we're going to rest. If the weather's bad, we're going to do 20 miles, and we're going to stop, and then we're going to rest. Amundsen's group reached the South Pole first. They returned safely first. Scott's team all died. Every single one of them died. Do you get the impact here? The lesson? 20 miles every day when the weather was good. And they were blessed. And then they rested and enjoyed. And when the weather was bad, they pushed 20 miles. And then they rested and were refreshed. Long obedience in the same direction. It's a book written by Eugene Peterson. A long obedience in the same direction That's the life that God is calling us to lead. So you wake up tomorrow morning and the weather is good. Get up and serve and follow Jesus. Wake up tomorrow morning and the weather is bad. Serve and follow Jesus. When you're in the midst of trials and when you're in the midst of blessings, just continue to get up the next day and to serve and follow Jesus. 20 miles every day, 20 miles every day, 20 miles every day. And you know what? It may not be flashy, but it's a life worthy of imitation. It's a life of, of endurance, 
Endurance. And it's important because endurance and courage are, are contagious. Right? When you have people around you who are willing to endure difficult times and who walk exactly the same way when times are, are blessed and good, it's contagious. When uh, our kids were little, we took one of our trips to Colorado and uh, we decided with some friends we were going to climb Deer Mountain. Right? And um, on the, on the, in the guidebook it says it's a three-mile hike, but we discovered after the fact that it's three miles if you drive to the trailhead. We went out the back of the cabins, in which case it's what, like a six-mile hike, something like that, right? So I'm thinking my kids were really, really little at the time. I thought they're not going to make it. Right? They're going to go up a little ways and then they'll quit, which is just fine because I'm not sure that I really feel like hiking for six miles today. But, you know, they just kept going. And part of it was because they were with friends. So they kept going and they kept going. And part of them, I'm like, you know, we, we didn't bring enough water. We didn't bring enough snacks. How long is this exactly? And we just think, I'm thinking, you guys ready? Should we turn around? No, we're going, man. We're going to conquer. They just kept going and going and going. They had far more courage and far more endurance in that day, in that moment, than I had. I was sure they would quit. But we just kept going and going. I thought this is, you know, we'll be up and back in the morning. But, you know, we're pushing on in the afternoon. We did finally make it. And when we sat down at the top, Funny side anecdote, my son opened his backpack and discovered that his friends at each stop had been putting rocks in his backpack. But he made it, right? And Anna Joy made it. And I made it. And they made it. We all made it. And we didn't turn back. Because we we fed off of the the courageous endurance of one another. This is a life worthy of imitation. But let me give you a couple of application points. Real simple ones. First is this. Find someone to follow. Find someone to follow. Uh, Maybe you're young and starting on the journey. I'm going to tell you there are people sitting all around you whose lives are worthy of imitation. If we can help you find someone to follow, let us do that. Or you may actually have a peer who's just a little bit further along in you than the faith. Find someone to follow. We learn best, most effectively and most efficiently, through imitation. Find someone to follow. Find someone whose life is worthy of following. Or maybe you're uh, past that, you know, that crest that happens at age 18, you know, and you're, you're back, you're, you're with me, you're, you know, here you go. Uh, finish well. You can still find people around you. That might be a person who's older in the journey. It could even be a person now who's younger in the journey, who's really pressing on in a way that you want to imitate. Find someone to follow. Uh, side note, one of the, the, the great um, resources that I've discovered is missionary biographies. They motivate me so much. It might be, it's best in a sense if it's a live person that I can see, but those biographies of people who've endured for a lifetime with Jesus, they motivate me. They challenge me. Find someone to follow. But second, challenge someone to follow with you. Find someone to follow with you. That's, that is the Great Commission, modeling it for someone else and inviting them to walk with you, whether that person is a, a peer or younger or older. Find someone who will walk with you, who will follow with you. Challenge someone. Paul constantly challenged people. He said, see the model of our faith? Imitate it. Jesus constantly challenged people. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. And don't wait for others to take the initiative. Whether you're looking for someone to follow or you're challenging someone to follow with you, don't, don't be passive. Don't wait for others to take the initiative. You know, when I first moved to Dallas, I, I went church shopping. Like, right, shopping. Literally, I'm just shopping. I'm testing out these churches, seeing if they, you know, they're good for me, do they meet my need. And you know what? I, I didn't like any of them. 
because there weren't any friendly people in any of the churches in Dallas. I'm like, no one is reaching out to me. Right, Week after week, I would go to a church. I'm like, man, these people, they do not initiate with me. They will not initiate with me. And I remember one Sunday, uh, a couple months into living in Dallas, I'm driving down the road to go to another church to check it out. And this, this flash of lightning came in words from heaven. No, not at all. It was just this little tiny voice in my head that said, who are you going to initiate with today? I was like, oh, ah. maybe it's not them. Maybe it's me. And you know what? In a moment, my whole perspective and my whole experience with church changed. And I went that morning and I initiated and I found a place to serve and I began to disciple some kids in the youth group. And then I got to know their parents and their hearts opened up to me as my heart opened up to them. And I found a church family and I loved it. I loved it because I, I, I ceased being just passive and waiting for others to initiate. I would also say, don't wait till you're perfect to initiate. Otherwise, the church goes nowhere because you never will be. But Timothy wasn't either. He was very fearful. Paul always had to encourage him. Come on, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Go, Timothy, go. And he was physically frail. Paul said, that's all right. Let's deal the best we can with your physical ailments, ailments and then go. Let's go. Let's go. Right? Because that's what grace is. Grace is taking the initiative. God demonstrates his grace toward us in that he didn't wait for us to try to figure this whole thing out and chase after him. Instead, he sent his son. Grace means that God initiated with us. Grace in our lives means we initiate with others and we chase them down and we say, would you pour into my life? Could I pour into your life? You know, there are a lot of definitions of success in our culture today, but the one thing I would ask you if we had a one-on-one conversation is this, uh, where are your men? Where are your women? Who are you pouring your life out into? Because that's the mission God has given you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us life in Christ and you've given us through Christ an example to follow. I thank you, Father, that uh, even in this church you have surrounded us with men and women whose lives are worthy of imitation. I pray that uh, we would not be passive, but that we would be uh, intentional. And, And in our intentionality, we would pursue others in the name of Christ. I pray, Father, that you would open up fresh opportunities and you would teach us to embrace this model of living that is like Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And here I am again. I'm scaring him. I scared him in the first service. But Brian would never, he would ask us to pray for him, but not in a public way like this. So I'm going to ask that we pray for him, if you would. Would you join me? Father, we thank you for this man. We thank you uh, for all of us who have followed him. I thank you for the example he has been in my life for so many years. Um, and Lord, that that application he just gave is one of, of what he has modeled. And so I pray, Lord, that you would right now, as you are working in him and through him, um, continue to work in him and through him with this diagnosis of cancer. And I pray um, for this thyroid cancer, Lord, that you would heal him, that you would bring healing in his life, whether you choose by a miracle and a supernatural touch, or you choose to do that through um, the skilled hands of those servants that you've placed on this earth. I pray uh, that you would heal this man. And I pray that as he Uh, walks through this with his family, that you would give them this courage, this endurance that he just spoke about, uh, that he has modeled for so many years, but that he would continue to walk that now personally in this trial. And Lord, 
let him live and speak the gospel through all those that he will talk to and walk through along the way. We love you. We thank you for Brian. We pray for his healing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, buddy. All right. Have a great weekend. Thanks. A great week. We're starting (laughs) one tomorrow.